Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 4. We're reading from verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come for understanding. And we ask that you would seal your truth to our hearts. We're weary and we're exhausted by our own sins and our failures. And we need the great comforting work of your spirit to affirm all that you have done for us and all that you have spoken to us of in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you have your Bible available, you may like to turn to Psalm 32, which is where we're focused this morning. We've just read from Romans 4, which of course quotes it. And if you are new with us today, visiting uh, because your children attended at VBS or just from out of town, we do welcome you. We're glad you could be with us on this Sunday in which we celebrate our children, celebrate God's kindness to us. And we celebrate why we believe God is kind and gracious to us here in Psalm 32. In November 2004, Frank Warren, 
He was just a regular guy, and he decided to buy 3,000 postcards. He randomly dispersed them, and they were self-addressed and already stamped, and they came with an invitation. 3,000 people received them with an invitation that they would put a secret on the postcard and simply return the postcard to him. They trickled in, and then they began to come in in floods. Frank has now received at least a half million of these postcards that he has purchased and bought and invited people to send. They're an interesting collection. They're artistic as much as anything, in which people tell their secrets. They are fears. They are regrets. They are failures. And these secrets have now turned into a website, at least five books, and also various art projects. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of secrets. And they do. They they are a mixed bag. They range from humor to desperation. One has the picture of a beautiful working woman in her mid-30s behind her desk. And this is what her secret is. Everyone thinks I'm a classy southern woman. Little do they know that I chew tobacco while they're in my office. (laughs) And then there are those cards that are very raw, filled with anger and disappointment. One card features the picture of a lotto ticket. And then written next to the ticket is, if I win, I'm calling the divorce lawyer. It's painful to read some of the cards, actually. On another card, a pastor sent a picture of a white clerical collar, as some of us are wont to wear. And the pastor then writes, some days it feels more like a noose. It's an intriguing collection, revealing so much about our deepest human wants, our deepest human fears, our deepest human disappointments, our deepest human failures. It's all just bound up here in this collection of postcards and what is a mass of humanity. But the one thing that unites all of them is this native desire inside the human heart that our secrets clamor for expression. They long to be heard, they long to be expressed, and they're ultimately searching for some kind of revolution. Resolution, excuse me. We all have them. We all want to be free from them. And the contention of Psalm 32 is that confessing our secrets to God is actually the key to what the psalmist calls a blessed life. Now, when we use this word blessed, let's be careful with it. Because you may have seen on the internet before, hashtag blessed, and like somebody does that when they get a new car or something like that. When the Bible talks about the word blessed or blessed, It's not simply talking about material prosperity. In fact, that's not the main focus at all. But rather, the meaning of the word blessed is a whole, a meaningful, a satisfied, a contented life. And what Psalm 32 argues is that the one who is blessed is the one who experiences the forgiveness and the grace of God. Follow with me in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That this is the whole, the satisfied, the contented, the meaningful, the full life is the one who 
has been forgiven by God and encountered and experienced his grace. And so the main question for us this morning is how do we experience God as a refuge in the middle of all of our secrets and all of our guilt and all of our shame that we carry inside of us? How do we experience God as a refuge? And in verses 3 through 5, we see that we can have this whole, this blessed, this full life. And to do so, we must translate our silence into speech. Follow how the psalm develops in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then follow into verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. With our secrets, we have a tendency. That is that we tend to bottle them up. We keep them to ourselves. We think it's safer that way. But see, David, the author of this psalm, knew something that modern psychologists have also discovered, and they have confirmed over and over that to suppress our secrets actually takes more energy and work than to confess them. And that when we suppress these secrets, when we press them down inside of ourselves, and when we keep them to ourselves, it has physical impact on our body. The psalmist says, my bones wasted away that his strength had failed him. That is what is unfolding as he holds on to his sins. Solomon, in writing the Proverbs, says it this way in chapter 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And it's important to note how that transaction takes place. It's very simple in verse 5. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Rather than sitting in silence, David decides to confess. He moves from his silence to confession, and he brings these things before God. And we find in, ver in that verse three words that are used in the original language to speak of human sin. We find the word iniquity, we find the word transgression, and we find the word sin. And it's actually helpful to note that because these were all three words that were available in the Hebrew to David as he wrote to talk about human failure. And he bottles it all up there inside of that one verse, and he says that God is the one who is able to forgive iniquity. God is the one who is able to forgive trespass. God is the one who is able to forgive sin. And he does it for the one who moves from silence into speech, who moves from sin being concealed to sin being confessed and acknowledged in front of God. Graham Greene, in his wonderful novel, novel the, the Heart of the Matter, he tells the story of a man who's full of failures, isolated in the jungles of Africa. And after going and visiting the pastor... He is then sitting in the church, and he's reflected on what he's just heard. Listen to the narration of it. It seemed to him for a moment that God was too accessible. There was no difficulty in approaching him. Like a popular demagogue, he was open to the least of his followers at any hour. Looking up at the cross, he thought, he even suffers 
in public. And friends, this is the truth of the gospel. What this man in Graham Greene's novel struggles with is that God is so accessible. Why is he that accessible that even he suffers in public, that he does everything in order to be reconciled to a humanity that rebels against him? And friends, we need to absorb the simple truth, though, that God is accessible to us. He's accessible to his followers at any hour. And this is one of the most important truths for us to absorb and to believe, even when we don't feel it in our bones, even when we feel isolated and far away from God, that he is accessible and he is open to us and freely receives us when we come in confession and when we come in repentance. And one of the things about Psalm 32, as we notice this move from silence into speech, is we note that that blessed life, and the psalm has other words around blessed. It also uses the word godly in verse 6. And then at the very close of the psalm in verse 11, it speaks of the righteous. And if there's one thing that we remember from today, it is that the blessed, the godly, and the righteous, that they are not those who avoid this predicament. But rather, the blessed and the godly and the righteous are the ones who work through this predicament. That the blessed and the godly and the righteous are not those who have it all together. Those who keep the law perfectly, as if someone could. But rather, the blessed, the godly, and the righteousness and the righteous are those who confess their sins. Those who experience what it is to be broken in half in front of God. To acknowledge those sins, to bring those to him, to know that he is accessible. And he is a God who abounds in steadfast love and mercy for us in Jesus. And so it's exactly the opposite of what we actually are prone to think. The blessed, godly, righteous life are those who don't remain silent. And one of the important things for us to acknowledge here is that silence is a form of pride and self-reliance. That when we go into those acts of repression and suppressing our sins and keeping them inside of ourselves, when we hold our secrets, that yes, we can be despairing, but we're actually full of pride and self-reliance in that very moment, rather than releasing it and looking to one who is stronger than us, one who has made promises about these things, one who can receive and absorb it, that we refuse to do so. And the great freedom of the gospel is that we don't have to play that self-righteous game that we're not looking to our own achievements and our own accomplishments to somehow impress God that he would allow us into his favor. But the announcement of the gospel is that God has done all of this on our behalf through the work of another, through Jesus, and that in dying on the cross and rising from the dead, that he's exhausted the penalty due to our rebellion against God for all the secrets that we have. And God has absolutely exhausted it and brought an end to our sin. And because he has brought an end to our sin, we can be freely received as we come to him because we stand in front of him in Jesus and in him alone. And that's the confidence that we have. And yet so often in the church, though we hear the message of grace over and over and time and time again, 
is that we begin to build our confidence in our own achievements and in our own accomplishments. Several years ago, we were on vacation with our extended family, and the children were there playing in the pool Marco Polo. You may remember the game where one person who is it calls Marco, and everyone else who is above water has to call Polo. I won't make you play. And then you're trying to find somebody by identifying their voice. You're trying to then go tag them. One of the cousins um, was very good underwater at directing themselves to the other cousins. They were it, and it was very obvious that her eyes were open. Her eyes were supposed to be closed underwater. And so she was confronted about this several different times, and she refused to acknowledge it. My eyes are not open. It's like, well, how did you turn direction and then dive at the precise moment? You know, but there was no acknowledgement of it. Then later on in the game, she was tagged and was it once more. She then requested, can I have my goggles? One of the cousins said, well, why would you need goggles? Well, I need to be able to see. And the moment of arresting had come. Why do you need to see if you're it? (laughs) And friends, this is how silly self-righteousness looks. This is how self-righteousness is to look in the church. It is that silly. That when we defend ourselves and we act as if we don't have grace and when we're primarily concerned with the sins of others, when that's our main focus, when we talk about sin and transgression and iniquity, when we look outward and we don't look inward, And we're not experiencing that grace for ourselves. Because, friends, the godly, the righteous, the blessed life is the life that knows the encounter of grace and experiences it again and again. The renewing love of God that's been given freely in Jesus and knows how to appropriate that again and again. So if all of this is true, if God really is gracious, if God really does receive our secrets in that simplicity that we confess and he forgives as we look to Jesus, then why are we so slow to confess? What is it? Why are we slow to take him up on this? And for many of us, these promises just seem to be too good. And also, we believe that our sin is just too strong. Follow with me in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The image inside the verse is very powerful. It's vivid. It's something like a box canyon that is flooding with chaotic waters that suddenly have crashed upon the canyon and then inside of one of these box canyons the water level can rise in just minutes and sweep those away in their path. And David compares that experience of the rush of waters that can threaten life and extinguish it and take it away. He compares the rush of great waters to his sin. 
And he says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, a time when you may be found surely in the rush of great waters. They shall not reach him. That is the rush of great waters shall not reach him. And he's reminding us of the truth that we struggle to believe because the struggle for us is will these great waters, our sin, our shame, our guilt, our failures, our faults, all the things that we have done, all the things that we have left undone, all the things that we've thought, all the things that we've said, all the things that we've left unsaid, pile it all up and we have this massive heap and surely that great mass of waters will overcome us. This is how we feel normally on the daily basis. But the truth of the gospel is that that great mass of chaos and turbulence, of fault and failure, will not overcome you. That God surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. And that the shout of deliverance has come from Jesus himself when on the cross he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the shout that surrounds your life, that circumscribes it, that is its center and whole and is the key to the blessed life. Many of you have heard me tell the story, but it's worth mentioning again. Colson family, classic from my youth. We would go on vacation oftentimes to Moorhead City to the Bogue Sound where we had some friends who had a family home. And oftentimes we'd be there during the week and sailing and fishing and going to the beach, doing some different things, and then the dads would come down on the weekend. And so I had been learning to sail that week and had gotten accustomed to that, and then my dad arrives in town, and he looks at my mom, and he says, let's hop on the sailboat. It was one of those small sunfish sailboats that are no more than 10 feet long. My mom looked at him and said, I believe you know my dad's name is Butch. Butch, do you know what you're doing? Of course. They hop on the boat. They have launched out from the shore for no more than 10 feet. A gust of wind hits the sail. The mast swings around. My mom flips off backwards. My dad goes flying off. The boat turns over. We see someone struggling underneath the sail. They're wildly thrashing, and it's my mom. My dad pulls the, the boat aside as he's floating in the water, and my mom looks at him, and she says, Butch, it's a really good thing that I can swim. And then he then looked at her. He stood up, and they were in knee-deep water. <laughs> and this is what you need to do as well. You need to recognize that, that rush of great waters, that which threatens you, that which seems that it could overwhelm you, that it could end you, that you can stand up. Just stand up. That the grace of God is beneath you. The grace of God is all around you. It is yours in Jesus. And that when we bring our sins to him and we acknowledge and we confess those and when we move from silence into speech and we bring these things to God, that the water does not overwhelm you, that it's not strong enough, that yes, there is plenty of sin in you. There is plenty of sin in me. It runs through everything. But there is more grace of God, grace in God, than there is sin in you. That's the promise of the gospel. And so when we bring all of our doubts and our confusion, our lack of trust, 
We need this promise tattooed into the heart, buried into the soul, that we're surrounded with shouts of deliverance, and all we have to do is stand up, and the grace of God is there for us. But where does it lead us? If we can move from silence into speech, being freely received by Jesus, our advocate, our mediator, the one who reconciles us to God, where does it lead us? And what does life look on the other side of silence? It's two brief things that David develops in the psalm. The first, we become teachable. We become supple to the work of God that happens in and through the word of God. Look in verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And this is what happens in the life of the one who is blessed, in the life of the one who is godly, in the life of the one who is righteous. No, they don't become perfect by any means. They'd never outrun the need of the grace of God. But what begins to happen is that we become teachable, supple to God. We desire to listen to him. When he confronts us, we hear it. We hear his voice when he guides us and leads us. We hear his voice when he corrects us. We hear his voice when he redirects us. That we become teachable to him. Second thing that happens is that we learn to give thanks. That this is the primary posture of the Christian life. You look in verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That it's really the only fitting response to the one who's heard the announcement. Blessed is the one whose transgressions have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. That the only response to that is to give thanks. And this is where grace and gratitude always travel together. That those who have been forgiven and been made upright because of what God has done on their behalf in Jesus, those to whom that has happened, that their speech on the other side of the request for forgiveness is praise and thanksgiving. And we don't praise and thanks for things that we accomplish ourselves. That's not how it works. But we give thanks and we praise when something is given to us that we couldn't do on our own. And that is what has happened for you. Something's been done on your behalf. It's been extended to you in Jesus. And we can move from the concealment of our sins to confessing them, to being absolved and reconciled and right with God, to becoming teachable and thankful people who when someone asks you about your church or asks you about your character, if someone else were speaking, they say, that's a grateful person. It's a teachable person. It's a humble person. All because you know what it is to be blessed. Something we don't deserve. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your grace that it goes beyond our measuring. It goes beyond our understanding and that we struggle with it. But it doesn't change the fact of your grace and all that you've done for us in Jesus. And so help us to believe, to receive it, 
May we move from silence and from our shame and from our guilt. And may we move to speech where we acknowledge our sins to you and we look to Jesus. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.